following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's passage is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. If you're following along in the Black Pew Bible, you can find that on page 943. Please stand with me as I read God's word. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is God's word. Well, as you just heard, we are continuing our march through the letter written to the Hebrews to this group of of Jewish Christians. And uh, I think right now, just on the front end, before we just get into the sermon title and the main idea, it's just helpful to remind you of what something I said last week. It's that when you read these verses that we just read, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, it will serve you to remember that these verses fall in a larger context. These aren't just verses that are popping up in the middle of your Bible written out of nowhere. They fall into a context. They fall into an argument that the author of Hebrews is making right now to his original audience. That's a little parenthesis. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 all the way down to chapter 6 verse 20 where this author, a pastor of these people, is pastoring his people right now. And he's saying something that's going to be very clear, very terrifying, very sobering, very, very pointed. But you need to know that on the outside of it, as he rolls out the back end of chapter 6, verse 8, he's going to roll into a very, very encouraging promise. And so you have to remember these things. This pastor is speaking, and just because we zoom in on this aspect, my encouragement is don't lose sight of the reality that there are things being said before these verses and after these verses, and the things said after these verses are meant to be taken and set on the table and understood just as much as these verses are as well. And so this morning, as we carve out these five verses, looking at verses four through eight, the sermon title is going to be this this morning, The Peril of Apostasy. Now, we talked about this idea when the author last talked about this idea, when he brought up this falling away from Christ, that's the idea of apostasy, finally, fully ditching Jesus, ditching his gospel, falling away. He brought up this idea in chapter three. He's going to bring it up again, but only this time he's really going to tighten the screw. He's really going to dial down and he's going to get a lot more specific about what the danger, the peril of apostasy is. 
The main idea that if you just want to encapsulate these five verses comes down to this, that there is eternal danger for those who fall away, for those who commit apostasy. There's eternal danger for those who fall away from Christ. Therefore, we are to heed this warning that he's giving us right now in these verses. This warning is meant to be an encouragement to those who are genuine Christians to stay the course, to march on, to hold firm to the end, to hold fast to the confidence of the hope in which we boast the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we need to pay attention to these words that he is using here this morning. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to hit pause, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to empower the proclamation of his word And then we're going to dive into these verses. So I encourage you to join in with me as we pray right now. So let's pray. Father, for your name and for your glory, you've given us these words to study on this morning in July in 2021. It's not mere happenstance that we all find ourselves here today. It's not sheer dumb luck that we're sitting here on this morning listening to the proclamation of your word. Our aim is to lift Jesus high, to set him at the center, to put the spotlight on him. He is the only one worthy of the limelight. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who loves to put that spotlight right smack dab on the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would do that. I'm asking that you would fill me and empower me to do just that, as it were, to sort of take me by the scruff of the neck and set me aside so that the one who stands at the center of it all is King Jesus and the invitation of this warning to come to him, the priest that we need, the great high priest, sympathetic, compassionate, loving, condescending, stooping low, meeting us in our weaknesses, our sins, and our sufferings. God, help us to see Jesus. Make us to see Jesus this morning. Holy Spirit, open our minds to understand these verses this morning so that as we walk out of here, we walk out of here as people who can say, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were explained, showing their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, please do this this morning. I am incapable of such things. You are fully capable, so we ask you to do what only you can do. It's in the name of Christ, our King, I pray these things. Amen. Remember, these verses fall into context, and we said something about the verses that come right before these verses that we're studying this morning. Last week, we witnessed the author make a call, and the call that he made was to lay aside spiritual immaturity, and he gave us the call to press on to spiritual maturity. The author, knowing his people, recognized that a spiritual malaise had begun to settle into the hearts of some that he had been called to pastor, and if left unchecked, this spiritual malaise 
would become a problem and it would become a problem that would only grow worse. This is why the problem of spiritual immaturity is exactly that. It is a problem. The spiritually immature, we said last week, lack spiritual growth and this lack of growth could be due to laziness. We addressed this last week. After all, lazy people don't grow. But it's also true that dead people do not grow. And lack of spiritual growth could be a sign of something else greater. Lack of spiritual growth could be a sign that there's something more dangerous going on, namely the absence in the heart, in the life of a person, the absence of what the Bible calls the new birth, being born again. So here's the author talking to his people and he says, I'm seeing something going on. There seems to be a a malaise, a spiritual immaturity creeping into the hearts of some. It could be due to laziness. Lazy people don't grow, but it could be something far worse. Dead people don't grow. Those who have not been spiritually born again are going to show no signs of spiritual life. I don't know where you guys are. He's going to talk about some who've completely ditched Jesus and have walked away from the faith. And so he says, these things are serious. These things are sobering. These things we should think about so we have a good understanding of what is going on. Therefore, the author called out the spiritual immaturity in his people. He pressed them to go on to maturity because he knows that if this person, if this man, if this woman that he's talking to remains locked in spiritual immaturity and shows signs of absolutely no interest whatsoever of growing spiritually, This is a danger sign, a warning sign that they are drifting to a place eternally, drifting towards a dangerous precipice, a place of no return that they do not want to be. You see, Christians who are truly saved, Christians who are truly regenerate, Christians who are truly trusting in Christ are those who go on and on and on forward, clinging Firm in the faith to the end, maturing in the faith, but, says the author, not to go on is eventually to go back. And that's because there is no neutral when it comes to the spiritual life. We're either growing and maturing from milk to meat, or we are regressing and going backwards. And so he knows that if we are truly genuine Christians, there will be this general trajectory of moving on and on, going on and on, maturing in the faith. But if we're not doing that, we'll be going eventually backwards. And then those who go back will eventually, if left unchecked, go out of the faith, falling away from Christ altogether. You see, in the Christian life, this is what we call apostasy. And an apostate is someone who once seemed to be a believer. But despite their profession of faith and despite all outward appearances, over time, what they show, what they eventually reveal is that their love for Christ began to wane cold. Their love for spiritual things began to stagnate eventually resulting in them going backwards past the point of no return as they deliberately make a series of choices 
to turn from sound teaching, to abandon God's people, and ultimately ditch Jesus, ditch his gospel, drawing the conclusion that this whole Jesus thing is just a load of rubbish. It's baloney. It's hogwash. I don't want anything else to do with it. I know what I used to believe. I know what I used to claim. I know what I used to say. I know what I used to do. I know how I used to behave. But I've come to the decided conclusion that this stuff is nothing. Rubbish. I don't want anything to do with it. And it seems, according to these verses, that in this body of believers to whom the author writes, there are those who have fallen away. There are people who used to be a part of this body, who used to show up on Sunday morning and go to the community groups and show up at the Bites and the Boulevard, and they used to do the discipleship groups and the women's and the men's studies, and they used to pray, and they used to read scripture, they used to do all these things, but now they're just nowhere to be found. They are those, he says, who have fallen away. Over time, they just drifted and they drifted right out the door and they've just drifted off the radar of Christ and his gospel. So it seems that in this body of believers to whom the author was originally writing, there are those who have fallen away, he says, as he talks about the impossibility of restoring them again to repentance. And it's to those who fall into this category, the category, what category? The category of those who once seem to be true believers, but later totally rejected Jesus that the author now turns his attention as he gives a terrifying warning. And that's point number one, a terrifying warning. This is verses four through six. Look in your copy of scripture, look at what the author writes starting in verse 4. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those, so here's the people he's talking to, in the case of those, those who, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, he says. You see, this idea of apostasy is a real, it's sobering, it's a weighty issue, which is why it's important for you and I, as we're reading these verses, to at least begin by asking ourselves this question, who are these people who have fallen away? When the author says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, we need to ask ourselves, who is them? Who are these people? Now, over the centuries, many have sought to answer this question, proposing, if you want to just sort of bear, uh, melt it down and sort of distill it down into its essence, have sought to answer this question of who is them by proposing three different views. The first option is that these people that the author is talking about are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, like truly born again, true believers, truly repented, truly believed, genuine Christians who at one time were marked by repentance from sin and salvation in Christ alone, but then came the day when they fell away, losing the salvation they once had. So if understood in this way, this passage right here before us is a warning that many genuine believers will fall away from the faith. Many genuine believers can genuinely lose their salvation. 
But the problem with this view is the abundance of scriptures which clarify that genuine believers cannot lose their salvation. Salvation is not dependent on how tight a believer holds on to God, but how tight God holds on to his child. So Jesus himself taught that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Why? Because all that the Father gives me will come to me, says Jesus, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Truly, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, for he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The comfort that any genuine believer can have is that the founder and perfecter of our faith will hold fast his own for he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. So following the principle of interpreting scripture with scripture, we must say this warning is not addressing genuine believers losing their faith because other passages say genuine faith cannot be lost. So this option that could be on the table, we need to take it off the table and set it off to the side. A second option of trying to figure out, okay, so who are those who have once been enlightened and go down the list? Who are the them that are impossible to be restored? A second option comes onto the table and it's just this idea that this passage is describing a hypothetical warning to genuine believers. So he's still talking to genuine believers but it's just sort of a theoretical falling away. He knows it can't really happen, but he's just using a hypothetical example to try to, to prove a point. So some argue that the author is using a rhetorical technique and sort of like a shock and awe approach just to spur these believers to cling to Jesus and just stay the course. And so he employs very sharp language, graphic imagery, calling his people to consider something he knows can't ultimately happen to these men, to these women who are professing faith in Jesus. But the problem with this hypothetical view is that experience teaches us otherwise. That falling away from Jesus is not just a hypothetical thing. This is a very real and terrifying warning for any and all who profess faith in Christ. Because the author knows that not all who profess faith truly possess faith. There are some that you have been around in your Christian pilgrimage who, like you, have professed faith in Christ. Out of their lips were the words, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I am trusting in him for my only hope of salvation. But over time, what time began to reveal is that while it is true that they professed with their lips at one point in time faith in Christ, the eventual drift and falling away from Christ proved that their profession was a profession only. They did not truly possess the faith that they professed. Before someone, this is key to understanding this text right here, before someone apostatizes, before they commit apostasy, what you need to know is that for a long time, they will look like a true believer. Thus, the warning that the author gives is very real, not, not hypothetical. 
Therefore, the argument that I'm making is that it's best to understand the phrase, those who have fallen away in these verses, it's best to understand them as individuals who have truly tasted the things of Christ, but as time began to reveal, they have not become genuine Christians. In a turn of phrase, they are almost Christians. And I'm putting, if I wish you could see my notes here, because I have a parenthesis around the word Christian in my notes. So don't hear me saying like I'm talking about, I'm in a minute here, I'm going to roll out as an example, an illustration, two different kinds of people, the genuine Christian and the almost Christian. So don't hear me saying the genuine Christian and the almost Christian fall into the category of being a Christian. That there's sort of two degrees, like a freshman squad and a varsity squad level, genuine and almost. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to use a turn of phrase to say there are genuine Christians who are truly genuine Christians because they've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. They have been born of God. They have a right relationship with God because they're trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the only hope of salvation. Then there's the almost Christian who's truly not a Christian, but they're saying the right things with their lips. They're going through the motions. They do all the Jesus stuff, they surround themselves with spiritual things, but what time will eventually begin to reveal is that all this stuff was just merely external appearance, so it's like they're close to the kingdom, they're close to Jesus, they're almost there, but they're not truly a Christian. And the thing that can be so tricky about it is as you ebb and flow in your week-to-week life, moving and ebb and flowing with people, both of them are going to be professing faith in Christ, both will look indistinguishable for quite some time, but as we'll see here in a little bit, eventually time will reveal that there is a distinguishing difference between the genuine Christian and the almost Christian. So in a turn of phrase, what I am arguing here is that the author is talking about this category of almost Christians professing faith in Christ with their lips, but as time proved, not truly possessing faith in Christ, for they did not press on and on and on in the faith firm to the end. Now truly, the author says of these almost Christians, who are they? They are those who have once been enlightened. He gives a fourfold description of these people here. They are those who have once been enlightened. Well, what does that mean? It means they were once in darkness pertaining to the things of God's gospel, but over time they were instructed in gospel truth. They came to an understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about the things of God. But just because someone knows many things about the gospel doesn't mean that they are a genuine believer who clings to the Christ of the gospel. You guys know the difference. There is a lot of people who can know a lot of stuff about things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe it to be true. He further says that they are also those who have tasted the heavenly gift. There are many blessings of God in salvation. And to be around true Christians who know the grace of God, who know the mercy of God in a truly saving way is to put yourself in close proximity to God's heavenly gift of salvation. And in this sense, their personal experience was a taste. But just because you taste something doesn't necessarily mean you eat it and ingest it and make it and make it your own. 
So again, just look at the experience of your life if you've walked the paths of of Christianity for any number of years, months, days, weeks. You bump into people who taste the heavenly gift of God's goodness and salvation by just sort of showing up on a Sunday morning in the ebb and the flow and rubbing shoulders of people and hearing the songs we sing and the liturgy and the proclamation of God's word from the pulpit and just talking with other Christians. They're in close proximity to these things. They're sort of tasting them on their lips, but they never actually go to the step of ingesting them, internalizing them, believing them, and making them their own. Further, he says, and it just keeps getting harder, by the way, in this description. He says, further, these are people who have shared in the Holy Spirit, he says. So just as putting yourself in close proximity to God's people can sort of give you a taste of that heavenly gift, so it also puts you in proximity to share in what the Holy Spirit might be doing in and amongst his people in a congregation. Even if you are not yourself saved and indwelt by the Spirit. There's been Sunday mornings, we'll just stick to the illustration of just say a Sunday morning gathering. There are Sunday mornings where by God's goodness, I think we would agree, like there are certain Sundays where we walk out the door and go like, man, God showed up today. Through the singing of songs to Jesus through the liturgy of confession and assurance that we have in the gospel of Jesus through the proclamation of the word focused on Jesus. It was just something was going on there. That was not just an experience for the people who are truly, truly genuine Christians. The almost Christian could be here in the midst and experience the exact same things. The proximity of sharing in the things that the Spirit does amongst the people whom he indwells. And to take it even further, as mysterious as it may be, as mysterious as it may be, there is a sense in which non-Christians can share in some sort of spiritual activity even as an unbeliever. A perfect case in point would be Judas Iscariot. You go back to the Gospels, and we are told that Judas, in Matthew chapter 10, was numbered among Jesus' 12 disciples, and listen, he, along with the 11, were given authority to cast out demons and authority to perform miracles of healing. What you don't read in Matthew is, hey, we know that Judas really, really wasn't, wasn't all in with Jesus, so when the casting out of the demons and the performing the miracles took place. Jesus just like gave it to the 11 and then Judas was just sort of out there bumbling around like trying to act like the other guys and, and step up and fill it. No, 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 it, it came to the 12. Judas included right there in among it. But what we know is that over three years of being around Jesus, Judas somehow in some way having mysteriously experienced these things came to the place where he goes, Don't want Jesus. Don't want Jesus. So some of you are probably sitting there going, okay, dude, I mean, you rolled out the the Judas card. Really? I'm no Judas. 
where I sort of want to take you aside and go, you're more like Judas than you might think. But then we'll, that's a sermon from another day. So we'll pull back on track here and go, okay, so I'll, I'll, all right, you, you played the I'm not Judas card. Okay. So uh, maybe let's take another example then from Jesus's teaching where in Matthew chapter seven, so go back a couple of chapters from Matthew 10 to Matthew seven, where Jesus begins to address the Lord, Lord brigade that goes around saying certain things with the name of Jesus Christ on their lips. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 say, from Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So these are people talking to Jesus on that day where they're standing before Jesus as judge. These people are not going to say, you fool, you fool, you idiot, you idiot. They're going to say to Jesus, Lord, you're, you're the Lord, Lord. But Jesus says, these are going to be a category of people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one, he continues to say, who does the will of my father who is in heaven, this is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, explain yourself, Jesus. And so he does. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now notice the language he's about to use here. This sounds like very sort of Holy Spirit kind of stuff here, empowering people. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are shocking words that should, that should right now be sort of scooting you towards the edge of your seat right now. Because what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this, just because you have Jesus on your lips does not mean you have Jesus as your Lord. Just because you go around with Jesus on your lips and you're doing sort of spiritual things like, in this instance, prophesying, that's a big deal. Casting out demons, a really big deal. Doing many mighty works in your name, big deal. But what Jesus is saying is that many are going to dry, try to ride on the coattails of works and proximity to spiritual things in the hopes that these things will be what scoops them into the doors of heaven. And Jesus says, I know that you did many mighty works. I know that you cast out demons. I know that you prophesied. I know that you were fully convinced that I am the Lord. But depart from me because I don't know you in a saving way. In a saving way. Loved ones, listen. Legion, myriad are those who are happy to associate with Jesus, happy to identify with God's people, happy to do spiritual stuff, but it's those, says Jesus, who will be shocked at their failure to enter the kingdom of heaven on that final day, for they failed to see that what is necessary, listen, they failed to see that what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Every one of us should be asking the question right now, what is the will of the Father? What's the will of the Father? If entrance into the kingdom of heaven 
rides on doing the will of the Father, hopefully you're like, I want to be in the kingdom of heaven where Jesus is, so hopefully that leads you to go, what is the will of the Father? The answer from the scriptures in John chapter 6 is that the will of the Father is that you and I would, listen, believe in the Christ and have eternal life. That's the will of the Father. Not going around Lord lording him, not going around doing a lot of external things, not going around giving mental assent to Jesus and all the Jesus stuff and just sort of floating in and out the doors of a church. The will of the Father is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might know and have eternal life. But it's this very lack of saving belief that describes those in Hebrews chapter six who have fallen away. Ultimately, he says lastly there in verse five that these people who have fallen away are those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Not only were they instructed in the gospel truth, but they were also instructed in the good word of God. They sat under the teaching of God's word. They read God's word. They carried with them a copy of scripture of God's word. They were catechized to understand God's word. They even received God's word with joy. Yet like the different soils that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower, they eventually discovered that it truly costs something to go God's way. It truly costs something to be obedient to the Lord of the word. And so thus they draw the conclusion that the word that I enjoy, the word that I hear, the word that I've been catechized in, I don't really want to be obedient to it. It's just too much. It's going to cost me too much to be obedient to this word and ultimately be obedient to the Lord of this word. So they begin that slow little drift of falling, falling away. What looks so promising in their lives comes to nothing as the, Jesus says in the parable, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke out God's word in their life. If you want to see the Jesus version of Hebrews chapter 6, I would encourage you to go and read the parable of the sower in the Gospels. You can find it in Mark chapter 4. It's your homework for this afternoon. So now some of you are probably going, wow. Okay, so like the gripping question probably resting on most of us is like, how can this be? Like, how can, how can this be right now? After all, to read that these people who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, these descriptions seem to describe someone who is a genuine believer. But that's exactly the author's point. Of course it sounds like that because there can be people who look a lot like Christians but then later prove not to be. Remember, before someone drifts beyond the point of impossible restoration to repentance, they look like a true believer. Both the genuine Christian who will hold firm to the end and be saved and the almost Christian who will eventually fall away both begin the Christian pilgrimage, both begin their pilgrimage on this path having been enlightened, tasting heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, enjoying the goodness of God's word and tasting the powers of the age to come. In the beginning, 
we can describe the life of the genuine Christian and the life of the almost Christian in the same terms because for the time being, the two are indistinguishable. It'd be like me going out into my backyard and saying, I'm going to start up a little garden. I till up the garden, I reach into a bag of seed, and I throw out some seed. Seed lands, but what I don't know is that mixed in with the good seed are some weed seeds. Weeks go by, months go by, you go out there and you look in the dirt and boop, a little, little sprout shooting up out of the ground. I look at that and I go, I don't know if this is good. I don't know if this is bad. All I know is that something is growing. It starts to grow, it starts to grow, it starts to grow. Eventually it becomes obvious, ah, this was the bean plant that I had planted. This is the carrot that I had planted, but right next to it is that thistle. I couldn't tell it in the beginning, but enough time has now gone by to where eventually it is very distinguishable that which is good and that which is thorny, that is which is thistle. That's not my illustration. At the end of Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the other location you can find it, he rolls right into that exact same parable that I just gave you called the parable of the weeds at the end of Matthew 13. Another place for you guys to go and read when you get done. You see, in the beginning, we can describe the genuine Christian and the almost Christian in the same terms because for the time being, the two are indistinguishable. But over time, the difference between them will become clear. And listen, here's the difference. In his spiritual life, in the spiritual life of the genuine Christian, the genuine Christian will go on and on and on. They will hold firm to their confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will hold firm to the end. They will keep marching on and on and on to the end. They will continue to expose themselves to the word of God. They will eventually, like we saw last week, grow ever more and more skillful in the word of God. They will slowly but surely graduate from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. They will eventually become the teachers they ought to be. This is all the stuff we read last week. And then here's a key difference. When the genuine Christian fails along the way, when the genuine Christian stumbles along the way, when the genuine Christian sort of slides towards coldness along the way, when the genuine Christian sort of listens to the voices not of the Lord and makes foolish decisions along the way, here's what distinguishes the genuine Christian from the almost Christian. Along the way, the genuine Christian will continue to look to Jesus Christ, his great high priest, coming to him over and over and over again because they know that on the throne of grace rules the great high priest whose name is love and that when they come to him who is compassionate, when they come to him who is sympathetic to the weaknesses and the trials and the sufferings and the sins and the fallings and the failings of me, I will not be met with a get out of here. I will be met with grace and mercy that I need. So as I'm traveling this pilgrimage road called the gospel way, I'm constantly going forward and going forward, going forward, going, man, I need the high priest. Man, I need his compassion. Man, I need his sympathy. Man, I need his grace. Man, I need his mercy. The almost Christian won't do that. Eventually, at some point in time, they will draw the conclusion, ah, who needs a priest like that? Who needs a priest like that? The almost Christian will look very similar along the way 
But the problem is that in addition to these things in their life, other things are growing in their life that will eventually become bigger and end up strangling the word in their life to the point that interest in the word of God just wanes. Over time, the almost Christian says, you know what, I just don't know that I need to expose myself to God's word anymore. I'm definitely not going to expose myself to God's word in the way that I used to. Who really needs God's word? Who needs the milk? Man, who needs the meat? Who, who even needs to ingest this stuff? Not me. I've heard it before, thank you. I've been around long enough to know these things, thank you. I don't need anyone else to teach me anymore, thank you. And the reason why they begin to think this way is because the appetites of their heart have been affected. Growing understanding in the things of the Lord and the life of the almost Christian slowly grinds to a standstill. They lose all desire for spiritual meat and then slowly they drift back and they begin to even lose desire for spiritual milk. And then the sobering, sobering reality is that this drift keeps on going toward falling away and what it reveals in the falling away is that just this simply not being genuine but being almost has just been lurking in the darkness all along. Friends, what you need to know is that apostasy is a deliberate act made up of a series of choices. And if left unchecked, there will eventually come a day when a person crosses, listen, if left unchecked in the life of the almost Christian, because the almost Christian needs to be saved, yes? Do you, do you guys understand what I'm saying? Or the almost Christian is not a Christian. The almost Christian needs salvation. So the author is saying, I don't know, maybe there's, I know those who've left our congregation, but there might be some more. Don't just keep drifting away. Repent, believe, hear the warning, heed the warning, come to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and know the salvation that can be, can be found in him. But he says, if we just let this person whose spiritual growth has obviously come to a standstill and it looks like it's beginning to go backwards, if we're just like, we're just going to let this, this man, this woman drift unchecked, there will eventually come a day where this person making a series of choices of no Jesus, no word, no redemption, no gospel, don't want it, don't want it, no repentance, no faith, don't want it, don't want it. There are a series of choices made deliberately over a long period of time will lead this person to cross some unseen point in time where he says it will become impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Why? Because they're crucifying once again the Son of God, he says, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In other words, having decided, the apostate, having decided to fully, listen, having decided to fully and finally bail on repentance and faith in Christ alone for salvation, they have firmly cut themselves off from the only way to be saved. So when you read verses 4 and 6 and stitch them together where it says, for it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, don't have in your mind someone who's like, I need to be saved. I want to be saved. I know I need to be saved. I know Jesus is my only Savior. Jesus, please save me. And Jesus is some cold heart up there going, beat it. No, not going to save you. That's not the picture. 
And I know that's not the picture because chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tell me that Jesus is the great high priest who's sympathetic to our weaknesses and all who come to him on his throne of grace will find the grace and mercy they need when you humbly, in repentance, penitently come to him confessing, I am weak. And he goes, that's good, I'm sympathetic towards the weak. I need grace, that's good. I love to just dispense grace. I need your mercy, Save me. I love to dispense mercy. The person the author is talking about is not that person. This is a person who knows the gospel, knows God is holy, no man sinful, and would say, I fall into that category, knows Jesus is God's only answer for sinful man to be reconciled to God, and the response is rubbish. Don't want anything to do with it. I am saying repentance and faith in Christ for salvation. I don't want anything to do with it. And the author says when someone at some unseen point in time comes to that place where the rubbish attitude concretizes in their heart, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance because they simply have come to the place where they said, I do not need to repent to be saved. Thus, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance because they've decided they want nothing to do with repentance. And then, having once claimed all of this Jesus stuff to be true of them in their life, they now no longer say it's true. And what they do in saying, yeah, I was here, but now I am here, the author says, is what they do is they bring upon Jesus public shame. They bring upon Jesus contempt. When Jesus hung nailed to the cross, he was regarded as an object of ridicule. He was regarded as an object of disgust. And now the apostasy of the almost Christian who has fallen away just simply gives people the ammunition they need to come along and go, man, I knew that Jesus stuff was just a load of baloney. I knew Jesus was just a big, big phony, a big fake. I mean, just look at you, apostate, almost Christian. You used to be all in, all in, full tilt, full tilt. Then you said, no, and now you're over here actually joining. If Jesus could be crucified again, he can't, but if he could be again, the apostate, almost Christian, would be in the crowd going, crucify him, crucify. But you, you, you used to be. Not anymore. And the crowds around him go, man, I knew it. I knew that Jesus stuff was, was a load, a load of baloney. So what does the author do? He drives his point home with a clarifying illustration. And this is just verses seven and eight. That's point number two, a clarifying illustration. Verses seven and eight. Just look what he does. He's not teaching anything new. He's just, he's landing the plane here, okay? But he's going to do it by giving an illustration similar to the language we've been using about fields and seeds and growth and fruit and thorns and thistles. Listen to what he says, verse seven. He says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if that field receives the same rain but bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. What is he saying with this illustration? In short, this illustration is an invitation for you, listener, to examine yourself. That's what it is. Examine yourself. Both the genuine Christian and the almost Christian have received the reign of God's word. Notice in the illustration, it's two fields. 
Both look the same. Both are fields receiving seed. Both fields are the same in that way. Both fields, both same in that they've received the rain. Both the same in the sense that in the very beginning, stuff begins to grow in them. But over time, it becomes evident that one field is yielding a fruitful, bountiful harvest of good stuff that knows the blessing of God, but then this field over here begins to reveal this little field is actually just a bunch of thorny thistles that is just is worthy to be cursed and burnt, says the, says the, the author here. And I believe we are meant to hear this illustration and remember the parable of the sower that I told you to go and read for your homework that Jesus told and then ask ourselves, okay, if this is the case, well, what kind of soil am I? What kind of field am I? I think that's the point of the illustration right now. As you're supposed to hear all these things and go, okay, there's a legit category for the genuine Christian, for the almost Christian. The genuine Christian in this illustration is the field that received the reign of God and it is growing. Good stuff is growing. It's blessed by God stuff is growing. Some of us, our lives are a bit more like the second field, looks like a field, receiving the reign of God's word on our, on our lives. We're hearing the stuff of the gospel, hearing the stuff of Christ, but what is growing in the field of our heart, the soil of our heart, is actually a bunch of thorns and thistles. We're meant to ask ourselves, am I the fruitful soil, the genuine Christian, or am I the thorny soil, the almost Christian? For some of us, the fruit of our spiritual life betrays our confession. Some of us here possibly are saying, no, 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 I've been around this Jesus thing long enough and I am positive I am the fruitful field. But the invitation of the author is to say, okay, that's good, just make sure you're examining the fruit because if you go around professing Jesus on your lips doesn't mean you have Jesus as your Lord. So you might be going around going, no, I'm positive. My life is the fruitful field. I am professing this to be true. But if you just be quiet long enough and begin to examine your life, what you begin to see is like, wow. Like it is just nothing but thistles and thorns. It is not the Jesus growth kind of things. Which is why this illustration and this warning ultimately is a call to examine the fruit of your life. Listen, I'm landing the plane here. I need you to dial in, okay? Listen, it's important as your pastor, it's very important right now, and I can see it in some of your guys' faces. Some of you are just like, oh, wow. Wow. Like, this is heavy stuff. Some of us here fall into the category of being sensitive souls. And after hearing me say all that I've just said right now, you're like, I, I think I'm an apostate. And I want to pastor you right now. And to remind you, it's true that we've been talking a lot about apostasy, that decided full and final falling away from Jesus Christ, but it needs to be said, listen, that apostasy is not the same as backsliding. Apostasy is not the same as backsliding. Apostasy is not spiritual immaturity. Some of us can examine our lives and go, I know I'm a genuine Christian, but I'm just not growing as I ought to be. 
And the reason why I can say spiritual immaturity is not apostasy is because verses one through three, the author just said to these people, you are spiritually immature, some of you. And then this is why I said what I said at the very beginning, you gotta go past verse eight right into verse nine because in verse nine, the author is going to turn right around and say to these people that he is talking to, but listen, though we speak in this way, in what way? In the way that we've just been speaking this whole morning, he's going to say, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that things that truly belong to salvation. So he's going to turn right around and tell them, I know what I just said in verses four through eight. I know you're spiritually mature, but don't think that I'm talking about you in this case, because if we are positive, we see the good, bountiful fruit of salvation in your lives. So you need to recognize apostasy, not the same as backsliding. Apostasy is not spiritual immaturity. There's a difference between the apostate and the immature backslider. And I'm saying this as clearly as I know how to in order to pastor the sensitive souls among us. Because I got to be honest, verses like these, when I was growing up, coming out of the mouths of pastors like me, when I would listen to them, they would flat out freak me out. They would spin me out because I know myself enough to know I'm not growing as well as I'd like to be growing. I know there's seasons of coldness towards the things of Christ and sometimes seasons of hotness towards the things of Christ. I know the field of my life isn't as bountiful as I would like it to be. I do not understand my own actions, Romans 7, 15, for I do not do what I want, but I know myself enough to know that I also do the very things that I hate. And so I'd hear these things about verses like this and go, man, this is a foregone conclusion. Like, I'm an apostate. And it would, man, it would freak me out. And I'm trying to pull you back from the ledge, the precipice of freak out right now, okay? We don't always find ourselves as fruitful as we'd like to be. And for some of us, we find ourselves a bit more spiritually immature than we'd care to admit. Or for others of us, there have been seasons where we have slid back far from the Lord Jesus. We have slid back and stayed there for a very long time. We have slid back into gross sin, repeated sin. But here's the difference. The genuine Christian, genuinely indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will, in God's mercy and grace, eventually come to their senses like the prodigal son in Luke 15 and discover that with God there is forgiveness for those who come to him in true repentance. And so the backsliding stops sliding backwards and they begin to slide forwards. Spiritual immaturity begins to eventually grow up into maturity and that alone. It might be microscopic. It might be minute. It might be like that little blade of grass just barely poking up out of the field. But what we don't do is go, why isn't it a living botanical garden in my life? What we can do is go, I see it. I see that little piece of growth in my life and I am praising God for that because that is the evidence of the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved me, that he's holding me fast. I am his and he is mine. I am a genuine Christian. And so we stand up and go, oh, thank God. Thank God for his mercy and grace. Thank God for his mercy and grace. God, I'm sorry for the sliding backwards. Thank you for being sympathetic to my failings. God, I'm sorry for the love of spiritual milk and immaturity that I have in my life. I'm sorry. Thank you for being sympathetic to my weaknesses. And the great high priest, compassionate and sympathetic, 
cranks his arms open wide and says, come on, man, just come into me. You're not going to find wrath. You're going to find welcome. Why are we going to find welcome in that moment? Are you going to find welcome because you're really awesome? Are you going to find welcome because you're just really good at the Christian life? Are you going to find welcome because you're so perfect at walking the gospel pilgrimage? No, you're going to find welcome from the great high priest whose name is love because this great high priest bore the wrath for our sins, the wrath that our sins deserve so that in that moment we might by faith come to him and live eternally. So while this warning of Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight is a terrifying warning. It could be speaking to some of us here this morning right now, like this is a lot more closer to home than I'd care to admit and you're able to say that because the Holy Spirit is bringing you to that place. It's a terrifying warning. A terrifying warning is if you just continue to go, yeah, that's true, but eh, whatever. The author is saying, please don't go diving over the edge of the cliff. Come to your great high priest. Because ultimately, while this warning is terrifying, the warning before us is an invitation. An invitation to what? Come to Jesus and be saved. Come to Jesus and be saved. Come, come to him. He's the priest. He's great, he's high, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's sympathetic, he's tender, he's caring, he's welcoming. He bore the wrath for your sins on the cross. He proved that he defeated Satan's sin and death by blowing out of the grave three days later. Where else are you going to put your trust? Come to him. Come to him. Are you right now believing in Jesus for your salvation? That's the question that I'll leave you with. Let's pray. Jesus, multiple words have been spoken. We understand this, but my trust is that you, Holy Spirit, have the ability to just make a truth. You, you know where every person in this room is at, and you have the complete ability to take what this person needs, the hearer this, this morning, you have the ability to take exactly what they need through what's been spoken and just press it right down into their heart. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would make that thing stick like super glue to their, to their mind today and that no matter how much they try to shake off the feeling of conviction in whatever way that is manifesting itself, that they would not be able to do it because there is like a supernatural super glue just sticking that thing to their heart and they would just have to wrestle with it with you. Lord Jesus, would you be magnified through the words that have been spoken today? Would we come to you, our great high priest, repenting and believing in you for salvation? Lord Jesus, do these things so that you ultimately receive the glory you're worthy to receive. It's in the powerful name, your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.